The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, uh, this week as I sat in my office, I found myself sort of torn about this passage. Now, it wasn't a struggle over how to teach it. I mean, the meaning is fairly plain and simple. I was torn because of its implications for me. I was torn because of how little I actually believe its truth. Now, some of you sitting here will have no problem with it. The the message of grace, of God's grace, has so settled into your hearts that you rarely or hardly ever struggle with a sense of condemnation. Others of you, though, might be more in temperament like myself. Now, perhaps it is the perfectionist in me. Perhaps it's related to my upbringing or my relationship with my father. Or or perhaps it's just the depth to which I know my own sin. But I find myself, I find in myself that when I fail, when I struggle... When I'm weak, I wrestle to believe the heart of Jesus towards me is one of compassion, of grace, of mercy, and of gentleness. You see, my initial belief is that God's first feelings towards me are that of hurt or perhaps disappointment. When I fail, when I struggle, that, that when God is looking at me, what he really feels initially is like, oh, again? Oh, man, I'm so disappointed. I expected better of you. I think that's my initial belief. And now, I know the gospel, and I have to work my way through it, but that's, that's the part that hits me first. Now, if that's something that you identify with, I would like to invite you to struggle with me. I would like to invite you to let the word of God rip out the lies and insert the truth into our hearts this morning. I would like to invite you to let the sword of the Holy Spirit, the word of God, pierce through to the deepest places past all of our defenses and get right to the heart of who we are. The title of this message is The Presence of a Lion and the Heart of a Lamb. The Presence of a Lion and the Heart of a Lamb. So we work our way through the passage today. We're going to break it into three parts for us to focus our attention on. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, we're going to talk about the compassionate heart of our high priest. The compassionate heart of our high priest. And then in chapter 5, the first four verses, we're going to talk about the gentle work of our high priest. The gentle work of our high priest. And then in chapter 5, 5 through 10, we're going to talk about the eternal role of our high priest. So the compassionate heart of our high priest, the gentle work of our high priest, and the eternal role of our high priest. Let's go ahead and read the words of the author of Hebrews to these believers, beginning at chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, 
since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called, a, a called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now the author of Hebrews has been making a case up until this point to his readers that, they, that what they have in Christ is far superior to anything that they had in Judaism. He has made this case that, that Jesus is a better alternative to going back to Judaism. And going back to Judaism isn't even a good option. He's made this case that Jesus is a superior messenger to all the messengers that have ever come. Uh, he is, he's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels that brought the old covenant. He, he brings a better and superior message than that of the old covenant. And he's demonstrated that Jesus is superior to Moses and offers a better rest than even what Joshua provided when he led the children of Israel into the promised land. And all along the way, he's been dropping warnings in between each break in logic. And the first warning told his audience that they needed to pay much closer attention to Jesus and the message of the gospel than they did to that of the old covenant. If God judged the Israelites for their failure to pay attention to the message that they received, how do you think he will respond if we ignore the message that comes from his son? That's the logic there. Then comes a second warning, and the second warning is about being careful not to go back. And he gives the example of how Israel was always wanting to go back to Egypt anytime they encountered a struggle or a trial while they were in the de desert, anytime they encountered difficulty. And he uses that to say to them, hearing the good news is insufficient. At some point, you have to trust what you've heard. And in the verses right before our passage today, he circles back around to talk about what God has spoken in the word. That is, through the law, through the prophets, and through his son, the word that God has given is like a sharp two-edged sword that pierces past our defenses and strikes right at the heart of who we are. It is, it is the standard, in fact, by which we are judged. Now, from those thoughts, a good Hebrew might ask, okay, well, I hear what you're saying, author of Hebrews, but if we're to so revere the word of God that we live by it, then what do we do with the entire sacrificial system of the old covenant? Shouldn't we also carry out those words from God? Don't we, in fact, in some way, have to go back to Judaism? if we're going to revere the word of God? Anticipating this reasoning, the author is going to build a theological case over the next few chapters. That those commands from the Old Testament were anticipatory. It was like, it was like some sort of prophetic theater that pointed to a future reality, a, a reality that is fulfilled and attained by Christ. In Christ, we have a truer and better priesthood, 
a truer and better high priest, a truer and better covenant, enacted upon truer and better promises, facilitated by a truer and better sacrifice. And the author of Hebrews is going to go on in the coming chapters to demonstrate and to prove that Christ has accomplished all that. But before he goes into detail about that, we have this little gem of a passage that sets the tone for trusting Jesus. He uses the verses in our text today to reveal what lies at the heart of Jesus. What motivates Christ to do all that he has done, all that he is doing? He gives them, and for us today as we take in these words, he gives us a reason to keep running to Jesus again and again and again and again. So, verses 14 to 16, let me read it again, refresh us. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. He opens with a summary statement. Since then. Now, since then refers back to all that he has detailed before. Jesus, the greater, truer, and better way to God. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, then comes the application, let us hold fast our confession. Now, the idea of holding fast our confession may seem a little bit archaic for us. But for the first century world, your confession was not just your words, what you said, but is what you professed with how you live. It was the entirety, if you were to sum up your life, what did your life demonstrate? What did it prove? So the encouragement goes something like this. In light of all that we know about the superiority of Christ, that he's now acting as our high priest in heaven, that Jesus has all authority as the Son of God. Keep holding on to him by faith so that your lifestyle reflects what you believe. That's kind of what he's saying there. And then comes the motivation. He gives some reasons why Jesus is a better option to cling to as a high priest rather than going back to the Levitical priesthood. He says in verses 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, so here it is. What lies at the heart of Jesus? What does he actually feel experientially towards his people when they come to him, even when they sin, even when they struggle? Two things. He sympathizes with our weakness. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. That's based on his own experience of being a human. And he responds with grace and mercy whenever we need it. He sympathizes with our weaknesses and he responds with grace and mercy. Now we need to pause here and slow down a bit to really take in this truth. He sympathizes with our weaknesses based on his own experience with temptation as a human. You know, in the present day, sometimes the word sympathy doesn't really encapsulate the same meaning. Often, uh, we think of sympathy as a sort of distant observation of someone else's suffering. And then sort of responding with, I'm so sorry, that doesn't look like fun at all. It's, It's removed, distant, doesn't enter into the pain of another. It's on the outside looking in. And so we have drawn a distinction between sympathy and the word empathy. Empathy is not distant. 
It enters into the suffering of others. It becomes vulnerable to the experience of their pain. It sounds, something, it sounds like something more close to a phrase like this. I, I, I'm really hurting when I see you hurt. How can I be with you in this struggle? I, I don't want you to hurt alone. That's empathy. And in this case, the word sympathy is chosen because the Greek word is the root of our English word for sympathy. But the meaning of empathy is derived from the context. He sympathizes with our weaknesses because he knows what it's like to be tempted. And he's moved experientially with compassion as a result of that on our behalf. Now often, when this passage is taught, the the discussion around this verse dissolves into a theological or a philosophical debate about whether or not Christ can even be tempted. And the reason for this is because there's this verse in James that says that God cannot be tempted, and people are tempted when they desire sin. But in my opinion, to emphasize that point misses the entire trajectory here. Temptation itself is not a sin. For instance, if you're, if you're tempted to overcome, or if you're tempted and you overcome that temptation, did you sin? Or did you have victory? You had victory. You're not sinning. No, you didn't sin. So when Jesus was tempted and did not sin, that that doesn't diminish his deity in any way, shape, or form. Listen, in the human experience of Jesus, he endured the same desires that every human experiences. Yet he endured every temptation to fulfill those desires through sinning, and he never failed once. C.S. Lewis has this great analogy where he, where he compares the endurance of Christ under temptation and trial to standing in the wind, in a really strong wind. Think like tornado forces coming against you. And he says, essentially, you know, there comes a point where every man must bow down to the ground, lay himself on the ground because the force of the wind is too strong. But that's the thing about Jesus. He never did. He never laid down in the face of temptation. He endured it to the uttermost. He felt the full force of all temptation and never bent. He alone knows the full weight and force of temptation because he never laid down. He withstood it all to the uttermost. Now here is what that means for the Hebrew audience that is reading this and for us. When we come to Jesus, his heart of empathy understands fully what we are going through. In fact, he understands more fully than any of us. He understands the full and undiluted force of temptation because he never bent under it. So what happens in the heart of Jesus based on his experience of facing such temptation to the uttermost? He looks at us in our struggle and he is moved with sympathy, with compassion, with empathy. Listen to what Thomas Goodwin, the the Puritan author, writes in response to this truth. It's a longer quote, so bear with me a little bit. There is comfort concerning such infirmities, and that your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. For he suffers with us under our infirmities, and by infirmities are meant sins as well as other miseries. Christ takes part with you and is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you. 
Even as the heart of the father is to a child that has some loathsome disease or as one is to a member of his body that has leprosy. He hates not the member for it is his flesh but the disease and that provokes him to pity the part affected all the more. What shall not make for us when our sins that are both against Christ and us shall be turned as motives to him to pity us the more? Now, of all the miseries, sin is the greatest. And and while you look at it as such, Christ will look upon it as such also. And He, loving your persons and hating only the sin, His hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction. But His affections shall be the more drawn out to you. And this, as much when you lie under sin... As, any, as under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not. What is Goodwin saying here? He's saying, because of Jesus' experience, the more you struggle with sin, or struggle in general, the more Christ's heart is moved with compassion for you. He hates the sin, But he hates the sin the way a parent hates cancer that afflicts their child. Simultaneous wrath at what harms the child is fueled by the depth of love for the one who is suffering. The greater the sin, the more compassion towards the sufferer. So what do we do with that information? How how do we respond to that information? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace in time of need. Now imagine for a moment that you are suffering in a desert. You've You've been making your way through a wasteland for 20 miles in the heat. You ran out of water at mile five. And all of a sudden you come across a sign that says, water in a hundred yards. Now part of you is reserved. You, you don't want to get your hopes up. Another part of you is desperate. But in the distance, as you look across the desert plain, you see green grass and a spigot and glistening water dripping from it. How will you respond? You run. That's what you do. You run, you run to it. Why? Because salvation is found there. Refreshment is found there. Renewal is found there. You confidently run to the source of life. Exactly what you needed at exactly the right moment. Matter of fact, even more than you needed. If you want, you can even take a bath in it. You can lay down under the spigot and let the water wash over you. An endless supply of refreshment is available. You see, that is the way that we come to the throne of grace. It is a confident run to the fountain of mercy and grace. And we're assured that all that we need is there, and it's there in abundance. We're assured that there is, there is more mercy and more grace than we could ever possibly use. And it's all there to be given freely. The supply exceeds even our capacity to hold it. And the one who supplies it is compassionate, empathetic, merciful, and gracious. And his heart is drawn to us in our broken condition. He longs to shower us with his grace and mercy. It is the entire reason that he came in the incarnation. It is the entire reason that he lived and died and rose again from the dead. It is the work of Christ in the heavens presently to dispense mercy and grace to those who need it. 
He loves to give grace and mercy to the humble who come confidently to him. This is the kind of high priest we have. And the question that the author poses to the original audience, and I think to us, is why would we want another? Look at the high priest that we have. Why would we ever go back to a human one? A fallen one. Then in verses 1 through 4, let's take a look now at the gentle work of our high priest. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5, the author continues this line of reasoning. He says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, so as he begins to whet the appetite of his readers for what is coming, he now makes reference to the Levitical high priestly office. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, the priest's job was to make sacrifices, and in, in, in this way, he was a representative for mankind to God. In the sacrificial system, there were different types of sacrifices. Some were called peace offerings. Others were sacrifices for sins or sin offerings. The peace offering was, was given to God simply for the sake of enjoyment of who he is. It was a way of acknowledging his worthiness apart from from needing anything from him. It was just pure enjoyment of God. But the sin offerings were present in response to some violation of God's law. The priest facilitated two types of sacrifices. And this is why he says in the text, offerings and sacrifices. Then notice the next line. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Under the Levitical law, the sacrifices for sins fell into two categories, the sin offering and the guilt offering. Now, the sin offering was to cover unintentional sins. The guilt offering was given in the case of intentional violations of God's law. Now, unlike the English word for guilt, this does not refer to a matter of one's conscience, but rather to something one owes, some sort of payback on account of sin. So other suggestions for the name of this offering are often called the the trespass offering or the reparation offering. And the purpose of this offering was to make reparations for one's sin. And so the role of the high priest was to make sacrifices for people who sinned unintentionally and for people who sinned intentionally. Both needed to be covered. Who does the priest make sacrifices for and deal gently with? Sinners. What type of sinners does he deal gently with? Well, I think our our natural inclination would be to say, well, to the ones who do it unintentionally. They're the ones that get gentleness. But But he saves his wrath for the ones that do it intentionally. But that isn't what the text says. He deals gently with both the ignorant sinner and the wayward sinner, the one who does it unintentionally and the one who does it intentionally. His reaction to the sin is not based on the seriousness of the sin, but on whether or not the sinner comes to him. That's the difference. Can can we pause here for just a moment? Would would you just take a moment? I'm going to ask you to do something. Some of you guys are going to feel weird about this, like it's some sort of emotional manipulation. I guess, honestly, I don't care. So we're, we're going to do it anyway. Would you close your eyes for just a minute? 
I want, to, I want you to take a second to kind of quiet your heart. I'm going to ask you a question. What is the unspeakable sin in your life? What, what's the thing that causes you such shame that you can barely summon the courage to even think of it? What causes the most shame that you can hardly even allow your mind to go there? Do you have it? Listen, whatever it is that comes to mind, let me speak the truth of Hebrews over you right now. The heart of Jesus is compassionate towards you. He sympathizes with your weaknesses. The greater your sin, whether done in ignorance or with intention, the greater his compassion towards you. He longs for you to come boldly before the throne of grace so that he can give you mercy and grace for that need. He longs to be gentle with you as he deals with the sin. The greater the sense of shame, the greater his heart is drawn out to you. Will you bring that sin to him? Even now? So that he can remind you of the fact that he already knew about it? That he already made payment for it? That he has already redeemed it? Will you let him apply his mercy Will you let him give you grace? Will you receive from Jesus what he offers at this very moment at the throne of grace? Don't just do this in theory. Right now, receive mercy from Jesus. Receive grace from him. Okay, you can open your eyes. I want you to think for a moment about what John saw in Revelation. In chapter 4, John is caught up before the throne of God. Lightning and thunder. The throne of God set in the middle of 24 thrones, the 24 elders sitting there in heaven. And there... In the hand of the one who sits upon the the throne is a scroll. This is a decree that God has issued. And this scroll is sealed with seven seals which he holds in his right hand. And we know from later chapters in the book of Revelation that the seals will unleash God's judgment on all that is wrong with the earth. But since the scroll is sealed by the king of the universe... It can only be opened by the one who God gives authority to carry out this judgment. Only that one person can open it. So an announcement is made in Revelation chapter 5. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And time passes... And John realizes that no one is found worthy in heaven or on earth to carry out the judgment of God and to redeem the world. And when John realizes that the world will remain helplessly broken forever and that no one can carry out God's plan of redemption, he begins to weep in heaven. And he begins to weep loudly so loudly that one of the 24 elders comes over to him to console him. And he says to him in that moment, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now when John looks up to try and see the lion of the tribe of Judah, what does he see there? He sees a lamb standing as though it had just been slain. The one who unleashes the final judgments on the earth is the one who was slain for its inhabitants. 
And immediately, in response to the Lamb of God taking the scroll, as soon as he takes possession of it, and everybody realizes God's going to redeem the earth, Judgment is finally going to happen. The whole of history is going to be concluded because the Lamb of God is here to do it. All of heaven breaks out in worship. And this is the song that they sing. Let me read it to you. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood... You ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests for our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's our high priest. That's our Jesus. The presence of a lion and the heart of a lamb. All authority from God to rule and to reign and all authority to ransom and redeem. And when he makes a sacrifice for his people, they no longer have to fear his judgment. His sacrifice atones perfectly for their sins, every one of them, and he will bring them to himself so that he might rule and reign with them forever. He's got the presence of a lion, but the heart of a lamb. Well, back to our text in Hebrews here. Now, the earthly high priest was chosen among men, verse 1 tells us, and was a fellow sinner. He gave the offerings and the sacrifices from the perspective of a fellow sufferer of humanity's affliction. And because of this, he was able to deal gently, verse 2 tells us, with those who came to be reconciled to God, since he himself was also beset with weakness. Now, this is a positive the high priest could be empathetic, compassionate, because he also knows what it's like to struggle, right? But it was also a negative, because not only did he have to offer for the sins of the people, but he also had to make sacrifices for his own sin. So verse 4 tells us that no one could take this job for themselves. It had to be given to them by God, just like Aaron, the original high priest. This, this was a position of divine appointment. You couldn't just apply for it. What is he communicating by all of this? He's saying Jesus acts as a better high priest because he serves the same function of the great high priest by making sacrifices and offerings to please God on our behalf. And he does the work of reconciling all those that come confidently to him to receive grace and mercy. He's gentle. He's compassionate as a fellow human, as one who has also suffered. But he doesn't need to make offerings or sacrifices for his own sin. He doesn't have any. He is wholly dedicated to doing it on our behalf. So in Christ, we we still get the gentleness and compassion, but we don't have to deal with his flaws. We don't have to deal with him being a sinner. Now, remember in the Old Testament, the spiritual status of the nation fluctuated with the quality of character of the high priest. A good high priest equaled a spiritually good time in Israel's history. And a bad high priest was a bad time in Israel's history spiritually. Why? Because he is the one going to God on behalf of everyone else. And if he shows up with his own sinful baggage before the presence of God, or or insincerely, he's just faking it, your sacrifice is affected. But listen, Jesus has no baggage. His sacrifice, therefore, is always received. It is always effective for the sinner and for the sufferer. He's an exceptional high priest, a better alternative 
human and fallen high priest. Because he's human, he's gentle towards whatever variety of sinner that comes to him. And because he's wholly righteous and never sins, he's, his offering is always received and effective. And, and, and listen, that's not all this passage has to offer. There's still more good news coming about this high priest. The rest of the passage will go on to say that he can't be replaced with, an, with another high priest. His service is forever. So let's, let's look at the next section, verses 5 through 10. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, in the future, we're going to spend more time on the person and priesthood of Melchizedek, as the writer of Hebrew, uh, the writer of Hebrews offers more about him. But for now, let's just think through what he's saying or what he's intending to communicate through this section. Jesus received a divine appointment as the high priest as well, directly from God. And this occurred at his baptism for sure. However, long before his baptism, the psalmist prophesied that Jesus would be called the Son of God. And in another passage, Psalm 110, that Jesus would be a high priest of, of a different priestly order than the Levitical priesthood. He would be from the priestly order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is mentioned in the book of Genesis in chapter 14. There's only a few short verses about him. Verses 18 to 20 of Genesis 14. He's mentioned in, a, in, a, in an interaction with Abraham in which Abraham uh, tithes to him. And he comes out bringing bread and wine. And, and the interesting thing about Melchizedek is that he is both a priest and a king. And in the Levitical system, these two offices in the nation never mixed. You weren't allowed to mix the office of king and priest together. Matter of fact, anybody who ever tried to do that ended up receiving the judgment of God. But because Jesus is from a different order, he is able to have and to maintain both offices. He can be both king and priest. Then verse 7 tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Here's what that means. God saw Jesus' priestly intercession on our behalf, and he responded by raising him from the dead. This demonstrated the approval of Jesus' priestly authority from God. It was the proof that his sacrifice was received and was effective. God saw his priestly intercession on our behalf, and he responded by raising him from the dead. Verse 9 tells us that Jesus was made perfect. His suffering and his resurrection completed his work of reconciling us to God. And his sacrifice was sufficient to save any and all who come to him. And as a result, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, it tells us. So now that he's raised from the dead, he lives forever. The high priestly office would be handed down when the high priest died to another person. And thus, the spiritual temperament of Israel would fluctuate with every new incoming high priest. But a perfect high priest who doesn't die is irreplaceable. He lives forever. We can always, therefore, expect his mercy, grace, compassion, and gentleness. His role as our high priest 
will never be replaced. His sacrifice is fully sufficient to pay for any and all sin. And he now stands at the throne of grace, ready to give mercy and grace to all who come to him. That's our high priest. How long does this priesthood last? Forever. If you sin right now, if you sin today when you go home, if you kick the dog, you throw somebody some profane sign language in traffic. His mercy and grace is sufficient to cover it. And if it happens a thousand times between now and when you die, his mercy and grace is sufficient to cover it. If it happens a million times before you die, his mercy and grace is sufficient to cover it. And it will be sufficient forever and ever and ever and ever. For eternity, Christ's compassion, grace, mercy, and gentleness is drawn out to us when we suffer, when we sin. So what do we do with this information? In our text, the author gives us three imperatives in response to this truth. The first one's found in verse 14 of chapter 4. Hold fast our confession. The second one is found in verse 16. Confidently draw near to receive mercy and grace. The third one's found in verse 9. And obey him. Follow him. Listen. Run to Jesus. Run to him. He's the fountain of refreshment. Hold fast to him. Confidently come to him to receive mercy and grace and live in obedience to him. While meditating on John chapter 6, verse 37, Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, imagines a conversation between us and Jesus. John 6.37, if you don't know, is, is the verse where Jesus says, All who come to me I will in no wise cast out. And so the conversation he imagines goes like this. No, no, wait, we say cautiously approaching Jesus. You, you don't understand. I've, I've really messed up in, in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You, you know most of it, I'm, I'm sure, but certainly, certainly you know more than what others see. But, but there is perversity down inside of me that is hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, well the thing is, it, it, it isn't just my past. It's, it's my present, too. I understand. But Lord, I, I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. But Lord, the burden is heavy. And, it, and it's heavier all the time then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed only towards others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me that you discover the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. How much I need to be reminded of this truth. How much we need to be reminded of this truth. 
Jesus stands ready to receive all who come to him. How much we need to be reminded to drop our defenses and come to the one who is the fountain of mercy and grace that we might receive that mercy and grace for our dry and thirsty souls. Amen? Would you pray with me as the worship team comes up? Father, I don't know how many times over the course of my life and walking with you I've heard this truth. Hundreds, maybe thousands. And yet it's reality, what it actually means for me and for us today stands ever fresh. You hate our sin because of what it does to us, because you love us. You understand our struggles because you yourself endured every struggle to the uttermost and never gave in. You know struggle even better than us. And you stand at the throne of grace ready to give mercy and grace to us. God, it's almost too much to take in again fresh because as I sit here, I know my heart. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Father, I, I pray right now over the people that have heard your word. I know that there are some possibly who are present who have never received your mercy and grace. And Father, I pray that right now in the quietness of their heart, in the stillness of their own heart and mind, their souls, that you would invite them to come to you. That, Lord, you would shower them, that you would drown them in your mercy, in your grace, in your forgiveness, in your love, that you would gently come in with the power of your Holy Spirit and change their hearts. Open their eyes that they might see you and receive forgiveness today. Lift the burden of shame from those who've been carrying it such a long time. Refresh them once again from the fountain of your mercy. Father, thank you for this word. We love you. Now as we move into a time of worshiping you, draw our hearts close. In the name and for the glory of Jesus.